when on a ship you can't run away. You have got to be, let's say you're on a cruiser with a, a crew of 800 men, and you've got to be as brave as your captain decides to be that day. And whatever you may feel down there in the engine room, that if the captain decides that he's going to charge at the enemy, you're going to go with him. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. Now today I have a treat for you. Two renowned historians, Max Hastings, I should say Sir Max Hastings, Knight of the Realm, and Saul David, friend of the show. They are here to discuss Max's book, Operation Pedestal. Now this book came out last year and I found the interview between the two knocking around the Aspects of History archive so I thought why not share it with my faithful podcast audience. Now you probably haven't heard of this operation, I certainly hadn't, but the more of Max's book I read the more compelling the story is. We're in August of 1942 so it's the 80th anniversary next month and the Royal Navy is sent on a mission to relieve the island of Malta, which was under threat of starvation and invasion at the hands of Axis forces. The relief naval convoy that includes aircraft carriers, battleships and ships of the Merchant Navy has to set sail from Gibraltar to Malta, a distance of over a thousand miles, or 1,700 kilometres, through the Mediterranean that was effectively in the control of German and Italian forces. The flotilla had to contend with U-boats, air attacks and the psychological effects of not knowing when and from where an attack would come. I do hope you enjoy their chat. I certainly did listening back. If you've got any comments and want to get hold of me, you can via the Twitter at OllieWCQ or you can email me history at aspectsofhistory.com. As ever, I'll put links in the show notes for you to find out more and I'll hand you over to Saul and Max. Right, let's crack on. Let's get. Oh, and yeah, just, you know, as I said in my email, Max, I mean, many congratulations because, you know, to have the energy to keep going and produce books of that quality is really uh, uh, astonishing. And it's looking very encouraging. I mean, I like to keep an eye on these things, um, even if you don't, Max. I don't know how, how studious you are about checking on things like this. But, you know, with all the reviews you got last week and, and um, the pre-orders that seem to be going in, I think you're going to be way up there in the charts again before too long, I think. Anyway, I'm sitting here this morning writing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. But actually, what I try these days, one deliberately writes books within a narrower compass. In other words, I'll never do another book, the, the sort of magnitude of all hell let loose or Vietnam or something, because it's just too exhausting. I mean, yeah. you know, you find, I mean, for instance, when I wrote Nemesis um, about the Far East War, and... Um, I remember spending the best part of a month on the chapter about uh, um, the dropping of the atomic bombs because the issues are so complex and it is all so vast that, you know, you were sort of waking up every morning thinking, am I physically fit enough to tackle this? And <laughs> I think it's smart to do. I, I never forgot um, uh, somebody hearing somebody say about John Keegan. He started out writing some very good books and they got worse and worse. And I thought, well, pretty God, I never find myself in a place. Well, of course, poor John had a huge amount of physical pain, which, of course, was a, that's one of the reasons he had more and more trouble, and he couldn't do the research. Anyway, you crack on. Yeah, just one last comment on that, Max. I think there's a, you know, there's a danger with all writers, actually, to rest on your laurels, particularly when you've had a certain amount of success, and to keep going at the quality you have, and, and Anthony, actually, is really remarkable, because anyone who's written a book understands the sheer amount of of physical and mental energy that goes into it is, is not to be underestimated. So it would be very tempting, frankly, is, is what I'm saying, to, to be able to take your foot off the pedal. But of course, as soon as you do, the quality will drop, I, I suspect. You just have to, you almost, uh, I think it's very important to almost say to yourself that this is the first book you've ever written and to tackle the issues, to just look at the issues, um, uh, close your eyes and just think, forget everything I've ever done before. Let's just think about this. And I was just sitting here just before we tuned in now, 
uh, writing about JFK in 1962. And um, you just sort of, I almost try and write the paragraphs as if I'd never written about anything about anybody ever before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very good advice. Know. It's very good advice. That won't get into the interview, but it, it should do. Um, all right, Max, I'll crack on because uh, I, I know you want to get back to uh, <laughs> get back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the first question um, that, that struck me actually when I was reviewing it was, given that it is your first naval history, why this story and why now? And why do you think you haven't done a, a, a naval history before before this point? I'm always trying to um, uh, think of things that I've got something new to say about. And because I've written so many books about the Second World War, that uh, there are a whole lot of campaigns that I don't feel like can, I can revisit without cheating readers because I'd be going over very familiar territory. Um, but I've never really written at length about the Royal Navy. And I wanted something, what I wanted was a story with a beginning, a middle, and an ending around which I could try and look at some of the, the, the issues about the Royal Navy um, in, in World War II and generally. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I've read, always read a lot of naval history. And for instance, um, I've always been a huge admirer of, of Nick Rogers' uh, history of the Royal Navy, mm. and in which Nick said something very important. Um, he said, there's a myth that um, the shooting of Admiral Bing in 1759 or whatever it was, was an act of stupidity for failing to relieve Menorca. But Nick Roger argued that actually it had been a terrific uh, success story for the Royal Navy because it absolutely galvanized them and changed their culture. And after Admiral Bing was shot on his own quarterdeck for failing to relieve Menorca, um, every naval captain for the next 200 years knew that he'd be forgiven for losing a battle, but he wouldn't be forgiving for, for failing to fight one. And um, I'm sure this is a very important and true statement. Another thing that always makes me laugh more recently, um, I was talking to uh, my dear friend, Michael Howard, uh, who died, died a couple of years ago. But uh, Michael, uh, just before I started writing this book, and we were talking about the culture of the Royal Navy, um, which is a wonderful culture, but it's not a cerebral one. There's a sort of, um, I've said in, in, in pedestal that, um, it's, there's a sort of rather bit like the atmosphere of, of, on a warship in action of a boys' boarding school, of this sort of noisy, um, often naked, odorous, smelly masculinity. And Michael Howard said to me in his inimitable way, he said, I have met many intellectual soldiers um, and even some intellectual airmen. I have never met an intellectual sailor. Um, and of course, Michael was camping it up a bit. But nonetheless, there was, there was a truth. Sailors do tend to be doers. A lot of them are rather mistrustful of um, the thinkers. They say, can we shut up and get on with this? And um, uh, it was during the Falklands War, I always remember uh, a naval staff officer on the command ship showing me a signal from, uh, 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 from the Admiral, uh, uh, oh, God almighty, I'm forgetting his name from it, you know, who was commanding out at, out at yeah, Wood, Woodward, was it? Woodward, out at sea. And Woodward was 200 miles offshore with his carriers. And he sent a signal to us in San Carlos being bombed. Um, more or less, it was a sort of very captain of game sort of signal saying, everybody better brace up and take a grip. And the staff officer who showed me the signals said, you know, how can you deal with a bloke who sends signals like this? So the Royal Navy's culture is something very different. It's something terribly interesting. And, and uh, I, I love the opportunity to, to address this and um and it did help because i was a correspondent in the falklands and one had seen ships sink and one had seen aircraft shot down and so on and, and you know what um what the atmosphere is like there people there are certain things that are completely different about war at sea for instance on shore soldiers always have a choice about whether to be brave or not but um Quite a lot of them in, in an attack will sort of lie there and wait to see whether it succeeds before they get up and decide whether to join in. And some of them will frankly run away. Well, on a ship, you can't run away. You have got to be, let's say you're on a cruiser with a, a crew of 800 men, and you've got to be as brave as your captain decides to be that day. And whatever you may feel down there in the engine room, that if the captain decides that he's going to charge at the enemy, you're going to go with him. And so 
it's the captains who um, set the tone for this. Um, I often wryly um, amused um, that you can always imagine there are quite a lot of men down there below who aren't quite as keen on winning Victoria Crosses as you might be up on the bridge. Um, that's a bit cynical. But all the time you're closing your eyes and trying to, trying to think, now, what was it like in that situation? And for instance, in the Mediterranean in 1942, um, what was it like to be in the engine room of one of those warships where you knew there was a very good chance you were going to hit a mine or be torpedoed or bombed? And the statistics show very clearly, and every man in the engine rooms knew very well this was so, that if you were down there in the engine room, your chances of getting out were, um, were pretty slight. Um, and how those guys kept going, one's admiration for those people, and they never got their fair share of the gongs, the decorations. The decorations did tend to go overwhelmingly, the men on the upper decks, the men who were the captains on the bridge and their officers, and the men who were firing the guns and so on. But gosh, to be down there in the engine rooms when your ship was badly hit. Um, there was one story which always, again, about the culture of the Royal Navy that made a great impression on me, and that was when the cruiser Edinburgh was hit and known to be going to sink uh, uh, about the same time, but up in the Arctic. And the senior engineering officer was on the upper deck by chance when the ship was sunk. And he was last seen. He said, I can't leave my guys. And that officer was last seen going back down below wow. to die, to drown with his men. And the courage of some of those guys, how can you not be deeply moved? No, I completely agree. Okay, Max, um, moving on to the specific uh, 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 operation, uh, Pedestal Malta, it, it has a justification in, in its uh, strategic role, as it were, but you don't think that's really the key to understanding why they did this operation. You talk more about the moral issues beyond territorial or strategic ones. So can you just expand on that a little bit? Again, I always try to remember whenever I'm writing anything, um, the saying which is all historians have gone with that Michael Howard often said to me, he said, we always have to remember there was a time when events that are now in the past were still in the future. Now, in August 1942, although with both America, America and Russia in the war, it was likely that our side were going to win. It was absolutely not certain. And in August 1942, Stalingrad had not yet happened. And a lot of people, some of them in Downing Street, thought the Russians were going to be beaten. They thought that uh, the Germans were going to win in the, on the Eastern Front. And sure, with the Americans out there, somehow, in the end, um, it was likely that, that, that Britain would be on the winning side. But it was absolutely not ordained. And a second thing that's vital to remember, everybody identifies Winston Churchill with 1940. Now, actually, in 1942, he was in a far worse shape politically because the British people were two years tireder than they had been in 1940, and they were weary to death. The Prime Minister kept making these great stirring speeches about the looming victory and our gallant allies in Russia and across the seas. But all Churchill seemed able to deliver were defeats. Um, Tobruk had just been lost, um, Singapore had been lost to smaller German and Japanese armies. The, the British had been um, evicted from Burma, they'd been evicted from Malaya, uh, they'd just taken the most terrible pounding in the desert so that Rommel was at the gates of Alexandria, the gates of Egypt. And Churchill was very unpopular. And in fact, Brendan Bracken, uh, his, one of his closest uh, supporters and minister, and Brendan Bracken said uh, in the desert, unless Churchill could deliver um, a visit, uh, a victory in the desert, it was going to be the end of it. Now that was probably an exaggeration. But he might well have been removed from his job as Minister of Defence, which he also held alongside being Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. So one has to remember what a hole Churchill was in and how utterly depressed he felt in the summer of 1942. Now, Malta, we can say objectively that Malta didn't matter that much, that Malta um, was this bastion which Churchill would often call the fortress, although it's hard to see why, any more than when he called um, uh, Malaya fortress, uh, um, Singapore fortress. But um, he repeatedly hailed the gallant defense of Malta, the fortress, which was under incessant bombardment by uh, German and Italian aircraft, 
the people were almost starving. Um, the, um, there were 300,000 people. The governor of Malta, Lord Gore, um, uh, reports to Churchill, uh, uh, we'll hold out as long as we can, but the food was due to run out in September. Now, nobody knew then that the Russians were going to win at Stalingrad. Nobody knew that Montgomery was going to win at Alamein. Now, objectively, on the grand picture, lots of historians have said this. Uh, they've said, in the end, what did it matter if Malta had to be surrendered? But in the end, uh, once um, um, after the American victory at Midway in, in the Pacific, after Stalingrad had been won, after Montgomery had won, Malta just didn't matter. It wasn't important. Um, but we can say that now. But all Churchill could see is that after all the defeats over which he presided, um, that if he now um, had to stand by and say we can no longer uh, feed Malta because two or three convoys have been hacked to pieces by uh, uh, Axis aircraft and warship uh, attempting to get supplies to Malta, um, that um, the blow to the British people would have been appalling. And so Churchill took the decision, and it was very much his personal decision, that Malta must be relieved at any cost. And Britain therefore sent to sea, and it's amazing this story isn't better known already, yeah. uh, the largest fleet of uh, the Royal Navy deployed in the West in the whole of the Second World War, um, and it was only in fact, it, nothing bigger happened until the Pacific fleet, the very last days of the war, but yeah. in the West, to deploy four aircraft carriers out of the seven that were all that Britain still possessed, two battleships, seven cruisers, um, countless destroyers, uh, destroyers and, uh, uh, and smaller, sh smaller ships and submarines. Um, it was, um, it was a, an extraordinary commitment to make. Now, there's not much doubt that uh, the senior sailors thought that this was just not worth it. They thought this was madness. They thought Churchill was completely wrong to do this because the risk We'd already seen, we just had only a few months earlier, the battleships, um, Prince of Wales, battlecruiser repulsed, sunk in the Pacific by aircraft. The Axis had 600 aircraft deployed around the Mediterranean. And the admirals knew that all these carriers and all these uh, battleships were gonna be hideously um, uh, vulnerable. What's more, although the carriers were good enough to ship, the aircraft they flew off, the, the Royal Navy was never very good at picking aircraft. And it was a pretty um, um, third-rate uh, um, selection of aircraft, a few hurricanes, which were obsolescent even in 1940, and even more so in 1942, um, a, a modification of the, um, of the American uh, Wildcat, um, uh, uh, called the Market, and, and another uh, not very impressive fighter of the Royal Navy's own design. These were pretty second-rate planes that were going to have to go up against first-rate German planes. But they knew they had to send a very strong uh, carrier fighter force to have any chance of surviving the air attacks that were going to come. And as for the merchant ships, how they got those guys to sail the ship, 14 merchantmen. Um, and these are civilians. And uh, these guys are being paid peanuts. Um, and you really wonder why uh, some of them, they were told they could go ashore, but they were also told if they did go ashore, they wouldn't be paid and they'd be held incommunicado in an army camp for at least six weeks um, to deter them from getting off, and hardly anybody did get off. Um, but that those guys on those 14 merchant ships uh, set off, uh, knowing that most of the merchant ships that had tried to save them all done before um, have been blown out of the water. Um, and some of them were so young. I mean, I couldn't get over... Um, uh, something that, I mean, the youngest, I think, was a ship's boy, age 14, or one of the merchantmen. The oldest that I've seen was 62, uh, a, a helmsman on one of the merchant ships. 62, for God's sake. I don't know where you feel like putting the sea on a uh, convoy like pedestal uh, at that age. But, uh, and when, when the, one of the carriers um, was badly bombed, and they lost 50 men killed, and um, they were putting the bodies over the side under white ensigns at sea in the middle of the battle. And the ship's bugler blows the last post. And the ship's bugler of the carrier indomitable is 15 years old. Yeah. And you can imagine this kid standing there who'd been a witness to this 
up that this rain of bombs descending on these ships. Anyway, the story of those four days of this battle, first of all, of course, they endure um, these terrific air attacks. And um, they also, on day one in the Mediterranean, lovely sunny day, a sort of day for holiday, um, some of the young uh, midshipmen and so on, on on the big ships, they think this is fitting like a holiday, um, all sitting there sunbathing on the upper decks and so on. And suddenly, whoop, everybody starts pointing and looking. And they look over to the great carrier Eagle. And this is the first day of, of this um, of, um, in the Mediterranean. And they see the Eagle listing dramatically. And um, after a minute or two, this huge ship, the carrier, um, just turns over and turns turtle. And eight minutes after, four torpedoes from a German U-boat, one this carrier, all that's left is a lot of heads bobbing in the water. And this is the beginning. And a lot of people wrote in their diaries that I quoted from. They said, from that moment, we realized this was serious. From that moment, one realized. And some of the memories of those people who were aboard that carrier, I mean, um, some of them, um, as the carrier went down, and one pilot wrote, he'd never forget the terrible screams and shouts coming up through the ventilators from the men trapped in the engine rooms as they are off to work. Well, in the next two days, they endure these appalling air attacks. Um, but the first day of the air attacks, although a rain of bombs descended on, and there were terrific battles all day, that um, in the end, that the sort of by sort of early evening of the 12th of August, um, uh, they're sort of halfway to Malta, more than halfway to Malta, and all that's happened thus far, all right, they've lost the carrier eagle, but they were expecting to lose something pretty serious. Um, but also they got one merchantman damaged. And people start to think, well, perhaps we're going to come through this thing. Perhaps, all right, the fighter pilots have, have had the most ferocious battles. We've had this rain of bombs. We've had so many in the misses. This isn't looking too bad. But then suddenly, in the ensuing... 12 hours, the Royal Navy um, suffered some of the most devastating shocks of the war. Well, first of all, um, Stuka dive bombers attacked the carrier Indomitable. This is about um, five, six o'clock on the 12th of August. And they all watched. They remember the Eagle going down and they see Indomitable, one of Britain's newest carriers, and they see this um, stream of Stuka dive bombers descending on it and wham, 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 uh, three bombs explode on Indomitable's flight deck. They see the, the, the whole, this huge ship shrouded in flame and smoke. And they're all, the whole fleet is watching this thing. The 50 ships are up and they're all watching the scene of the carrier, um, absolutely streaming smoke. And um, they were all convinced it was going to go the same way as Eagle had gone the previous day. But miraculously, a brilliant damage control work. Although they lost a lot of people killed and the carrier was unfit to fly off aircraft again, after 10 minutes, they suddenly get the flash signal situation under control from the carrier. And Indomitable survived. But the Admiral, in command of the whole thing, Cypress, he decided after this, um, they got to turn around the big ship. They couldn't risk. Uh, remember, this is four out of Britain's uh, entire um, carrier um, force of, of seven carriers, uh, which have been out there in the Mediterranean. And he's already lost one, and he decides they've got to turn around, and they've got the two battleships. So the battleships and the carriers turn around. Um, and then they go on with cruisers uh, and 13 of these 14 merchantmen. And it felt pretty lonely for them after watching the spectacle of uh, these huge ships turning around and streaming back towards Gibraltar. Um, and suddenly, although cruisers are big ships, and you've got uh, uh, this big cruiser force of four cruisers and all these destroyers and so on. But then um, the worst has hardly started to happen. First of all, an Italian submarine, and people always mock the Italians, but some of them, including some of their submariners, were very good. And this Italian submarine action delivered one of the most devastating torpedo attacks of the war. But um, one torpedo hits 
um, the cruiser Admiral Burroughs flagship Nigeria wham and Nigeria was suddenly badly hit um, unfit to steam any further miraculously not sunk wham a second uh, torpedo hits another cruiser Cairo blows its stern off Cairo can't be saved Cairo has to be scuttled wham a third torpedo hits the most important merchant ship in the convoy the tanker Ohio and again flames shooting up in the sky. Everybody else looks at this, they take one look and they think, a tanker uh, full of oil and all the rest of it. Um, this is the end of that. But this was uh, an American built tanker, um, probably the strongest ship of its kind in the world, very compartmentalized. And miraculously, after five minutes, they got the flames on Ohio under control. And Ohio, although it was lagging behind, it was still able to keep steaming. Um, but Nigeria has got to turn back. And the Admiral made the decision that Nigeria was very badly hit, lost a lot of people killed, um, that he's got to send three destroyers back as escort. So he's weakening the rest of the force. And he transfers his flag to a destroyer. And Again, the scenes on board Nigeria. Um, and Burrow was a typical Admiral Burrow who took over the rest of it. And he was a typical, no nonsense Christian, never read a book in his life, read the Times sports pages, liked his gin and tonic before lunch. Obviously, a lovely man, one of a vast number of children from a Herefordshire parsonage. Um, and he was the absolute uh, muscular Christianity personified. And um, Burrow transfers his flag to a destroyer. Nigeria turns back and does somehow miraculously manage to limp to Malta. But Cairo, one of the cruisers, is gone. And those, this terrible period hardly started, even as they're getting sorted out from this disaster. And it was a disaster. Suddenly, nobody's been paying attention to the radar. And suddenly, a stream of German and Italian aircraft comes storming in and deliver another devastating attack. Um, and they, in the space of a few minutes, sink two merchantmen, uh, badly damage one or two more, um, and give the fright of their lives that the convoy from that moment, as darkness descended on that terrible day of the 12th, um, that morale was pretty shattered. And um, again, what's amazing, they kept going. These guys, all these merchant vessels, so a lot of them very scared, and they admitted they were scared, but they kept going. And um, Churchill's in Moscow at this time. He's talking to Stalin, who is mocking him relentlessly for the pathetic British performance of the war. And Stalin says, your Navy runs away uh, because of what had happened to an Arctic convoy to Russia uh, a few weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. So Churchill's feeling pretty raw and sore, getting a pounding from Stalin. He gets a signal reporting what's going on in the Mediterranean. One carrier sunk, one carrier badly damaged, uh, two cruisers apparently gone, the things. Terrible signal for Churchill to receive, but um, he had to go in there and get back and talk to Stalin. And meanwhile, in darkness, um, these ships are plowing on. But then, um, in the early hours of the morning of the 13th of August, um, they're off the coast of Tunisia, and there's another ghastly surprise waiting for them, a whole um, stream of Italian and German so-called e-boats, torpedo boats, high-speed boats, 40 knots, um, best part of 50 miles an hour, tearing in to attack. And these boats start firing their torpedoes and inflicting devastating new damage. And some people lose their nerve. Um, the convoy, so-called Commodore, the motion, uh, our merchant officer said we must turn back to, to Gibraltar and he ordered the ship he was on to turn around and two others followed him until a destroyer caught up with them and said you will join will turn back and, uh, and, and head for Malta um, which they rather reluctantly and belatedly did but these torpedo boats whamming these merchants in the middle of the night three more merchants hit in the night and worst of all, a cruiser, biggest cruiser uh, in, with the fleet, huge ship with a crew of 8,900 men, 
This is hit by torpedoes, and its captain, quite frankly, lost his nerve. He decided the ship couldn't be saved. They're a few miles off the coast of North Africa. He made the decision, even though his engineering officers told him that uh, uh, they thought they could regain power. Um, he said, no, no, he said, it's hopeless. Um, he said, when daylight comes, we'll just be hit by air attack. If we get everybody off now, then we can save everybody's lives. And, uh, and so he ordered the cruiser Manchester scuttle. Well, um, a few months later, he was caught martial for that um, because Churchillian crusades are not won by humanity. And in peacetime, of course, the decision he made would be absolutely the right decision. He saved the lives of 800 men. His decision was absolutely the right one, but almost certainly the next morning. Uh, the Italian and German aircraft would have caught up with them, the ship would have been sunk, and uh, all those men would have been, a lot of them would have been lost. But that's not the way you win wars. So um, Captain Drew of the Manchester was uh, convicted by the court marshals and never held another seagoing command. Um, and his men were jolly grateful. I mean, they rode to the shore and they were interned by the Vichy French, um, but Manchester went to the bottom. And so you've now got this drastically depleted fleet on the morning of the 14th of August. They're only 102 miles from Malta, but the Admiral up on the bridge of, um, of, uh, um, of his temporary flagship, a, a destroyer, and he's talking to the captain um, about rugger, because this is what you do if you're being watched. You know every man on that ship watching you, and you're all, and so you've got to put on a show. And they were brilliant at putting on a show. And a rating comes up from the radio room, and he reads off a signal of all the ships that have been sunk during the night. And Barrow just nods and says, very good, and then goes back and carries on talking about rugby. This is what you have to do if you're an admiral of the Royal Navy in the midst of a disaster. But their troubles were not by any means over. But um, an hour or two after daylight, the uh, Axis Air Forces come through again. And they hit the biggest merchant ship in the convoy, mostly carrying ammunition called Weimarama. And it blows up. And there's a colossal explosion. And the sea is suddenly awash with flaming fuel. And there are men screaming in the midst of it all. And the courage some of these people displayed. Um, that, first of all, one of the destroyers, the Admiral sent a signal to one of the destroyers saying, survivors, but don't go into the flames. Well, the captain took no notice and drove his ship straight into the flaming sea with his men playing hoses on the decks to keep the water. And he pulled 40-odd uh, survivors out of the water. Um, his, his ship's cook comes up on deck and he's the ship's um, um, water polo captain. And um, he um, uh, takes one look at what's going on and he takes off his apron, dives straight into the water and swims to start pulling men out of the water. Mm. And what these people did is, is amazing. Anyway, Weimarana's gone and another uh, ship went that morning. Um, and you've only got You've only got three ships left with the Admiral. And with the, uh, on the afternoon of the 14th of August, um, that the Admiral hands over these ships on the, just on the, on just short of Malta, two um, ships coming out from Malta, and those three ships get into Malta. Um, but the story's not over uh, by a long chalk. Uh, I mean, every single ship in this, in this fleet, you could write a separate book about. I mean, it's, it, it a quite extraordinary story. Um, one merchantman, which had been hit by a torpedo, had um, had uh, um, been creeping along the uh, the coast of North Africa, and um, it was a miracle they were still afloat. Uh, and frankly, most half their crew lost their nerve. And a delegation went up to the bridge and said to the captain, a guy called Fred Riley. Um, they said, we want to take this ship into port here in Tunisia, neutral Tunisia, and we can all be interned and the war's over. And, but they said, if you, you try and dash from Malta 150 miles across the open sea, we're all gone. It. We've got a ship with a soggy great hole made by a torpedo. In it. And Fred Riley and some of his men, they had the guts. They just told them all to sod off. And uh, they said, we are going on to Malta. And um, 
So Fred Riley and his crew, all, I mean, what a crew. I mean, they all, even the naval liaison officer had, had told Riley that he thought they were probably doomed. But they made this terrific last dash for Malta. And a few hours after the earlier three made it, uh, that suddenly this ship, um, uh, Brisbane Star, um, suddenly appears and amazes everybody. It, it um, sails into Grand Harbor Malta. Um, and the fact that Fred Riley, he got the same DSL other captains got. Um, frankly, I mean, you feel he should have got the VC for what he did with a mutiny among his crew. And it was effectively a mutiny as well as all the rest of it. So that's another story. But the last bit was the best bit because um, the tanker Ohio was hit repeatedly by bombs and streams of German bombs landed on and around it. And by um, uh, the 14th of, uh, of, uh, of August, um, Ohio is about 150 miles short of Malta. It's being escorted by three destroyers. Its engines are stopped. Um, it's got two crashed German aircraft on its deck. Or oh, sorry, one crashed Italian and one crashed German aircraft on its deck. And um, um, it's slowly sinking. Um, it's been hit in so many places. And all that day, um, aircraft keep appearing. It's pretty scary for not only the men on the ship, but the men on the destroyers around it. Um, they know that if this ship explodes, as could will happen, then they're going to go out with it. And yet, again, they all kept going. And the sort of madness, they're all exhausted. Uh, the captain of one of the destroyers uh, uh, had the brilliant idea. They lashed one destroyer to each side of Ohio and started dragging it the last hundred miles. And the men were so exhausted that most of them were sleepwalking. Um, the both the destroyers were crammed with survivors from other ships who every time German and Italian aircraft appeared were absolutely terrified. They had nothing to do. Um, the captain of one of the destroyers brought his gramophone up on the bridge and started playing Glenn Miller um, over the ship's broadcast system. Um, some of the men on board Ohio manning the guns um, uh, got at the rum and got at the drink supplies and some of them were absolutely plastered out of their minds. One found a container of party hats and they all put on these party hats, and some of them were manning bopus guns on the Ohio, wearing wearing Christmas party hats. So there's a sort of madness about this, but it was a sort of inspired madness. And by a sort of miracle, they managed to drag this tanker slowly sinking up the last hundred miles to up Grand Harbor, and they drag it round the defences of Malta, open open fire on them in the last few hours in darkness. Um, which caused a certain loss of temper on the bridges of some of the ships. But on the morning of the 15th of August, which is the, uh, uh, the, one of the most important festivals in Malta's uh, history, the Festival of Santa Maria, the patron saint of the island, with thousands of Maltese cramming the harbour and bands playing, Ohio, the tanker, with 85% of its fuel still intact, is dragged into Grand Harbour. And Everybody's in tears. I mean, they're in tears on the shore, they're in tears on the. And it was a quite extraordinary. I mean, it was an, an amazing, as I say, there are a hundred separate epics in this story. And some naval historians have written brutally that they think you have to regard this as an Axis picture because the Axis, the Germans, the Italians, they inflicted so much damage on the. Uh, on the um, uh, on the Royal Navy and on the merchant vessels. Nine ships out of, out of 14 sunk, uh, not to mention all the warships that were destroyed. Um, but I've argued very strongly that war is above all a contest of wills. And I do believe that um, at that moment, it was enormously important that the British show the world that they could still fight, that they were still and Churchill made a point of writing himself to Stalin, listing all the ships that were sunk, because the great cry from Stalin and the Russians were the British were frightened of dying. They were frightened of losing people, when the Russians were losing them in millions. Yeah. And Churchill made a point of saying, we've lost some of the best ships in the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy to do this. And the Americans, never forget that opinion polls were showing Americans in 1942, um, had a very low opinion of the British because of all these defeats. Uh, there was an opinion poll in the summer of 1942 
asked Americans who they thought was trying hardest to win the war. And the figures were amazing. And of course, inevitably, most said the Americans. But after the Americans, they then chose the Chinese and then the Russians. And the British were somewhere down there, hardly on the Richter scale. Yeah. Um, but the Americans faced. So I think it was enormously important in showing the world and showing the United States and the Russians that the British still had the guts to, uh, to bear the sacrifices and to do this stuff. And I find it one of the most moving stories I've, I've ever written. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you, Max. That's a wonderful retelling of it. And I can assure you it's incredibly moving to read. I mean, it, it, I think there's something about naval history and the story of ships and the constant danger, particularly once they're in that area of, of uh, potential attack from bombs and uh, torpedo boats and submarines, that it's just tense. Every minute is tense. You can't escape the feeling. And I bet you it felt a bit like that to be truthful, when you are on the convoy down in, in, you know, in the Falklands, that you never know where danger is going to come from. Therefore, you're constantly on edge. Well, it always um, amused me in the Falklands that all the ship's captains have been brought up on the same black and white British war movies that, uh, that we all saw when we were kids. And they sort of took their scripts from that so that one day when... Um, uh, Argentine air attacks were heading in and I was on the bridge of the frigate Arrow and the captain broadcast the ship's company and he said remember lads when they come give them hell and I thought he's been watching too many um, too many episodes the cruel sea and all that and um, and everybody um, if, if everybody knew they were sort of acting out of part in a in a British drama that was sort of left over from World War II because it was a very World War II sort of war. Yeah. So um, the fact that one had seen this stuff happen, and um, I remember when one of the um, uh, when a, they saw on the destroy livery on pedestal when they saw a pilot coming down the sea parachuting into the sea, they dashed to get him, hoping he was a British pilot. It turned out to be German, and. Um, half the crew shouted from the deck, throw him back, throw him back. Um, and again, in the Falklands, I remember being rather shocked that when an Argentine pilot parachuted over uh, St. Carlos Bay, and every um, gun in the anchorage opened up on him, and it was a reflection of what rotten shots they were that nobody hit him. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, an awful lot of infantrymen around the shore were blazing away with brain guns and um, even rifles to try and kill this wretched type pilot on his parachute. So I'm afraid that's what happened. And one did sit, see some of this stuff. Yeah. Max, let me ask you last couple of extra questions because you've, you've covered almost all the bases I was going to talk about. And we'll probably add in the odd, the odd question just to break it up a little bit when, when they do the uh, the piece in the paper. But, but one, one or two couple of extra bits, just give a little bit of insight into some of the research you did for this because there are so many wonderful details. I mean, I could think of at least 20 things that I just thought, wow, where on earth did you get that from? And I love the story of the can Canarino, the Canary. Um, you know, this, this Second World War drone, which clearly didn't work very well. But where did you, how did you end up finding nuggets like that? Every book I write, um, I try and think, where can I look for materials that other people haven't found? And the British, to this day, have a bad habit of treating the Italians in the Second World War as sort of a joke. And in fact, I asked one of the best writers on this period, a naval historian, I asked him if he'd done any research in Italian sources. Um, and he said he hadn't because, and this is what's so tough about um, if you're not on the bestseller list. He said, frankly, the advance he got for his book about pedestal just didn't justify uh, the research in Italy. Um, but I, I'm lucky enough these days, one can uh, spend the money to do the research. And so I've got a brilliant Italian translator. And she did a hell of a lot of work for me on Italian sources. And that was a big plus to, uh, uh, to stick all that in. Um, I also did a lot of work on, on German sources. Um, and as far as the British stuff goes, you have, there were 20,000 men aboard those ships. And a surprising number of them kept diaries and wrote letters. And of course, I trawled every single one of those in the Imperial Warship and other archives. Um, and you just, and also I was able, Admiral Burroughs' daughter, one of his daughters is still alive, aged 96, 
and um, uh, her, the, the family were very helpful to me. And uh, uh, one of the relations of the school got a lot of the paperwork from uh, one of Admiral Burry's staff from his secretary. Uh, so um, I wouldn't, you would claim, like a lot of, the, of, of these things, you're not going to find a great revelation here. But first of all, I'd like to hope that one looked at it in a new way. And um, secondly, it is one of the great stories of the Second World War that is too little known. But I'm amazed how many people, even uh, quite serious historians, who say to me, um, say, well, um, they say, gosh, we never knew about pedestal. And this was a huge story. I mean, it was, it was one of the biggest naval events of the Second World War. So I'm only thrilled. I found it absolutely fascinating to write about it. I think there's a really good chance, given that I've recently watched Greyhound. Um, the, I, I don't know if you've seen that, Max. It's on Amazon, so it's not the easiest thing to watch these days, the Tom Hanks thing. I think it's based on a C.S. Forrester novel. I, I might be wrong in, in, in that. But of course, it's Second World War. It's very, very similar to, to your story. But they bodged that together, frankly, from some events that are true and some not true. I mean, how, how much better to tell the story of Operation Pedestal, the true story in proper cinema, cinematographic, um, you know, uh, detail. I mean, it would make the most wonderful film. So uh, you, you never know that your, your book may well be optioned at some stage. I, I suspect people reading it are going to be stunned by the, uh, by the drama that there is in the story of a convoy. I think you make the point at the beginning, don't you, that how on earth, you know, is it likely that the story of a convoy can be that exciting? Well, the, the fact is it, it can. But anyway, that was just an observation. My question in relation to that, Max, is, you know, really going back to the beginning, Given that you've now you've now seen the you know the 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 opportunities, frankly, of writing about the navy, do you think you might do more of this in the future? I don't know. I can only focus on one thing at a time. I'm <laughs> I'm writing on the um, Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and all you can do, I, one has to be, you have to be incredibly focused, as you know so well, when you're writing a book. So all I'm thinking about at the moment is the Cuban Missile Crisis. But when that's over, who knows that uh, there are fantastic stories out there of the Royal Navy, both from World War II and earlier. Yeah. Uh, no, one final, final thing, um, Max. Well, one of the things I've always found so refreshing about your books is your willingness to engage with the darkness as well as the light, as it were. So, you, you know, you've never pulled your punches when you, you, you're talking about people who even given the context of the time, have clearly failed in their duty. And you've already mentioned a couple of people um, <laughs> up till now. I mean, there are many stories in this, but there are also many wonderful stories of extraordinary heroism. And again, you, you cover those. But one of the things that I found most jarring, and you've already alluded to it, but if you could just say a little bit more about it, is the, is the unwillingness, frankly, for uh, the Royal Navy, maybe understandably at the time, to have any kind of bad press immediately. And therefore, people like... Uh, you mentioned the the skipper, in fact, the Commodore, who, you know, who really effectively does a runner and is later given the, the same medal uh, as the extraordinary story of the of the merchant ship that comes through. And there's just something <laughs> jarring about that. You know, something sticks in the craw a little bit, doesn't it? The old truth, my dear, about the old truth of every, every veteran always says to each other, the only man who knows what a decoration is worth is the one who won it. And this is true in all wars, in that I've often come across quite shocking stories of people who've been um, pretty disgracefully awarded DSOs and other things. And very often, I'm afraid, uh, sort of generals and admirals' favorites get the decorations and so on, and other wonderful people are left out. So it's not unique to pedestal that. But, um, but all one tries to do on the whole, what's amazing about wars is that most people, it's, it's not the most, most people, how well most people behave. Yeah. But all I don't believe in is airbrushing out uh, the people who do not behave so well. Because, um, I mean, one thing I always remember writing about um, land battles is that, is that um, a very experienced American officer wrote, um, he said about a quarter of your people in an infantry attack a quarter of people carry or attack, and about half of your people uh, sort of come along behind somewhere, and the other quarter, if you're lucky, may turn up afterwards. And that is, that's the way it is in all wars. And you just have to be incredibly naive to think everybody's here. 
And one problem Churchill had was that Churchill, because he himself was a hero, he was always expecting everybody else to be heroes. And he was very shocked when people did not behave like that. Um, it was, he, he was bewildered, genuinely bewildered. Um, I mean, it was a great episode. In August 1942, the same period, when he addressed a lot of British troops in the desert about, um, he said, I told them of the wonderful laurels that would be theirs if they played their part in the coming battle. And um, when I wrote in, uh, about that particular remark of Churchill's, which he, he, he wrote in a letter to Clementine, and I said the truth was an awful lot of people uh, in that desert army they were not, they were civilians in uniform. They weren't remotely interested in winning gold. What they wanted here was what sort of Britain they were going to come back to if they were lucky enough to survive the war. And Churchill never thought about that at all, which is one reason they chucked him out of power in 1945. So you always have to be thinking um, what's going on in people's minds and what. And they were not all aboard those Royal Navy ships. Um, they were not all happy bunnies. A lot of them would have loved to be somewhere else. Um, that it's all right for the career naval officers up on the bridge. This is what they do for a living. But a lot of those people down below were sort of grocer's assistants from bank clerks and so on, who all they wanted to do was survive and go home. And that wasn't too easy in the Mediterranean in the 1942. No, I can see. Okay, Max, listen, thank you so much for, uh, for giving your time for this. Um, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I'm going to keep my eyes on the bestseller list in the next couple of weeks, because I'm sure it'll be there. Um, and I hope it keeps selling all through the rest of the year, actually, because you're out quite early, aren't you? It's unusual for you, isn't it? This, this early. We decided to do, but anyway, my dear, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you, Max. I do hope you enjoyed that. Two veteran historians there, and at least one of whom is a true legend. It was quite funny listening back, actually, because about halfway through, when Max was telling the story about the ship's cook, who was also the water polo captain, he received a call right in the middle. Well, obviously I edited that out, but it was quite amusing listening to Max having to deal with an unwanted call in the middle of a highly important interview for Aspects of History. Water polo is dangerous. To quote Tony Curtis, I'll say, I had two ponies drown under me. I have more to follow in the coming weeks, including Elizabethan secret agents, Oliver Cromwell, and crime in Second World War London. If you can leave me a review or subscribe, I'd be hugely grateful. But as ever, thank you and good night.